So now we come to the temptation of Christ. This is where anything that you're wondering about Jesus' identity, anything that you're wondering about whether he is it or what he's going to do or what he's going to accomplish, what kind of Messiah, it all gets wrapped up right here. At this point, we're going to realize that something is different. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, full of the Spirit of God, turned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he endured temptations from the devil. Twice it says, full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And I think a lot of times when we read this growing up as kids and that kind of stuff, we get this idea that Jesus kind of went out into the wilderness to commune with God and he's fasting and he's just kind of meditating in silence and then, ha! The devil comes and gets him and surprises him. And Jesus is like, where did you come from? We have this idea that the devil just kind of shows up spontaneously and surprises Jesus and he didn't see it coming and now he's faced with this temptation. Scaring people is my spiritual gift. Um... <laughs> We get this idea, but it's very important for you to understand that the Spirit is leading Jesus there. This is all God's plan. The, the devil showing up as God's plan. Jesus knowing that he's going to meet the devil is God's plan. And so this is all what is happening. So he goes, now notice he's fasting for 40 days. The idea is that he is not eating bread or drinking water. And you're like, well, how can that work? Same thing with Moses. When he was on the mountain for 40 days, he did not eat nor drink. And Jesus is going to make it very clear. How does that work? Man does not live on the bread alone, but by every word that comes out of mouth. And they're like, Jesus, Jesus, you haven't eaten for hours. He's like, I have other things other than bread. And so the Spirit of God can sustain you. If, this, if God is the one who created your body to run on food, then he can alter the body too whenever he wants. He's out there fasting, but it doesn't change the fact that he's still weakened. Okay, the idea is that you do need to see that he is in a weakened physical state. Because one of the purposes of fast, one of the most major purposes, this is what kind of a little bit bothers me about Lent, when people are like, oh, for Lent I gave up television or I gave up chocolate. Now, I'm not saying anything there's wrong with that, okay? Like, if, if you're going to give that up because that's a distraction that normally comes in your life, and you're going to spend that time instead being in the Word of God, then Lent, praise God, right? But... At the same time, I think a lot of people think that is the sole purpose of fasting, is to just give something up that now you now are going to spend this time reading your Bible or praying or that kind of stuff. And that's, that's righteous, that's godliness, that's, that's most excellent. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the real purpose of fasting was to weaken the flesh. It was literally like you're not eating and you're becoming weak. And then you kind of get a little grumpy. And, and then what begins to happen is the real you comes out. You know, the real you comes out when you're in pain, when you're hungry, when you're sad, and that kind of stuff. And the idea is that, one, the real you comes out, and you begin to realize what your flesh has really been doing. Without the strength of your flesh, you're not capable of being loving and nice and patient with people all the time. Or you're not capable of... Whatever, 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 whatever. And it is that moment that that is in your prayer, you surrender that to Christ. And that's where the, the gold becomes refined. Where the, the, the fasting is you going through the fire. The slag is revealed and God can scrape it off so that when you come out of the fasting, you're more refined. And then the other thing it does, it reveals what you're really like. It shows that you really do need God all the more. And so 
it then lets you then then the, the next thing it's doing is allowing you to experience the power of the spirit a lot of times we depend upon our physical strength or our mental intelligence or our skill or our energy or whatever and when you're physically weak and your mind is not sharp without food and water and you're da 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 then it, you begin to really see the spirit all the more so what it does is it begins to reveal what you really are without the strength of your flesh. It allows you to really surrender that to God, to allow yourself to be refined in prayer and submission. And, and then it allows you to then see the Spirit show up where a lot of times your own capabilities get in the way and blind you in a prideful kind of way from seeing what the Spirit's doing. The idea is that Christ is going to be weakened to such a state that no one can say he did that through physical power. He did that through mental sharpness. So that when the, when the devil shows up and he defeats and resists the devil, he's not doing it in the power of the flesh. He's doing the power of the spirit. And it becomes very clear that his victory over the devil, his resistance of the devil, is not through might and power. It's not through horses and chariots. It's not through the flesh. It's through the spirit of God. And that's the main reason for this fasting here. Not only is it, now the other reason you're fasting is you're obviously, like I mentioned, the first reason is you're communing with God. He's not getting physically ready by lifting weights and eating carbs and all this kind of stuff and having energy drinks and, and blood doping or whatever you want to do to get ready for some kind of battle. He's getting ready by weakening the flesh to become totally dependent upon the Spirit so he can commune with God for 40 days, and that's all he's doing. Because in the wilderness, there's no distractions. There's no internet. There's no iPhone. There's no music. There's no, there's no tablets and pen to write on. There's nothing. It's just him and God. It's like a sensory deprivation tank where all there is is you and God, and there's no other sensories to distract you. And so the idea is that it's just him and God, and that's his training. That's his preparation. Not that Jesus needs training, but for the for sake of analogy. Okay? And so that's what he's doing. And notice that it says he's being tested and tempted throughout the 40 days. You don't become weak after 40 days of not eating. You become weak pretty quickly. And so there's this thing. So this is the, this is the final round. This is where the devil gives them everything. And so the devil then shows up. At the end of this 40 days. Now the other thing too is going into the wilderness takes you back to a couple of things. First, like Adam, the new Adam, he is going to be tempted by temptation. But unlike Adam who was in a garden that everything was good, this new Adam is in a barren wilderness that has been marked and ravaged by sin and rebellion. You now can't say, yeah, but... The circumstances around him were just prime for success. No, he's in a gutted out garden that everything is dead and bears no fruit because of the sin of humanity, because of the sin of the first Adam, like Paul said. And the sin came through the first Adam, but righteousness and redemption came through the second. And he's, he's fasting too. But it also goes back to Israel. Israel also was in the wilderness. And they were in the wilderness for 40 days. And this idea of 40 is being connected intentionally. And they were also tested in the wilderness. So the two major figures in Israel's history is Adam, Israel. And these are the two major figures. And Adam failed and Israel failed. 
And now Jesus is in the wilderness to be tested and tempted because everyone who's going to be the prophet of God or the king of God or the voice of God has to go through testings and trials to determine their worthiness. And the wilderness is not only a place of barrenness that's been ravaged by sin, but it's also a place where you meet God. You see this Moses in the wilderness meets God at the burning bush. He meets him on the mountain. Israel meets God in the wilderness. And and Abraham goes off in the wilderness. And Jacob is in the wilderness when he encounters God. Because of everything being stripped away, as a result of sin, also because there's nothing left, you can meet God. Even the devastation fallout of a nuclear sin waste, God is still there where he can meet you. And so it has that double idea. And so what you need to understand, this is the significance of this whole thing. When the devil shows up, he doesn't say, if you are the son of God. He says, since you are the son of God. Now in Greek, there's these things called a first, second, and third class conditional statement. And a conditional statement is basically if and then. And we often think of an if then as if I don't know, but when it does, then this will happen. And if it doesn't, then it will not happen. But in Greek, they don't, they do it differently. They have a first, second, and third class conditional statement based on the grammar. And the first class is if the implication is, and we know it will happen. The second is if, and we know it will not happen. And the third is if, and we don't know. And this is a first class conditional statement, which means a better way to translate it is since you are the son of God. The devil knows it. I mean, he's been around for all the prophets. He, he's been watching the angelic annunciations. Now, I don't believe the devil even knows who I am or you are. and He's not involved in my life in any kind of way. He's in Vladimir Putin's life and Biden's life and whatever you want to say, like the, big, the, the movers and the shakers. And I'm not saying anything bad about them. I'm just saying the movers and the shakers. It's the other demonic beings that are involved in our life. And I don't even think we have like an assigned... When angels start showing up, and the prophets start aligning with the stars, you know the devil is going to give it all of his attention. And the fact that the Bible says the devil, this is the devil. He's been watching. He knows. He knows the prophecies better than the, the Pharisees did. And he sees it all lining up, and he knows. Now, did he fully understand Jesus God? I don't know. I don't think so. But does he understand that Jesus is the Messiah and you, more unique than anything else has ever come? Heck yeah. I mean, if we can get it after three chapters, he's got it when he's there witnessing it all. So the question is not if. The question is, what kind of a Messiah are you? And that's the question that's being answered here. Because everything you've seen throughout history is Adam, utopian paradise. And Adam screws it all up. Oh, but Noah, Noah's going to start all over again. And he's a, he's a righteous man, so righteous, like everyone was evil all the time and had no good in him. But Noah, of all people, did the one guy, so, and then he gets drunk and fails. And, and then you get to, to Abraham, and you're like, oh, he, he's not a godly man right now, but he's going to grow, and he's going to become this godly man. But then he passed his wife off to save himself, and da-da-da-da-da. And then he can't even raise his children right because Isaac screws up tremendously and carries on his own weight, and, and Jacob screws up and that kind of stuff. So you're like, okay. But, but then you get to Moses, and you're like, oh, the greatest prophet that's ever lived. He's seen God face-to-face more than anybody ever has. I, and he, God even says this. And then he says, must we bring you water from the rock? putting himself equal with God in the miracles. And not that he really thought he was equal with God, but in that moment, the pride 
and he doesn't get to go in the promised land. And you're like, well, he failed us. And then you see David. David is the king, and then he rapes a woman, murders them, cuts the head off of a man, carries it as a trophy, extorts a village, and you're like, oh, well, he's not it. And then you get Elijah, and Elijah seems to fit like numbers, a prophet after me, and Deuteronomy, a prophet 18 after me, and all this kind of stuff. And he's doing all these things, and then he's like, I quit. I'm not doing this anymore. And God has to kick him out of the promised land too. And after you've been seeing this, and then even Israel, if you thought Israel was the Messiah, the entire nation, well, the wilderness, the golden calf, the refusal into the promised land, the book of Kings where they've become worse than the Canaanites, all the Bible is for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No, there is not one who is righteous. And so you're used to fail. Oh, yes, it's here. Fail. It's here. Oh, fail. Oh, it's here. Fail. And by the time Jesus comes along, you're like, okay, whatever. And it's, it's like Cuba. It's like Iraq and Iran, right? And they're like, oh, I'm a rebel. I'm one of you. And I'm going to lead you in liberation against the corrupt government. And, 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 I'm gonna, and then they get into power and they just become even more corrupt. And the new liberator comes and they're going to liberate Fidel Castro and Chavez and Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein. They're all like these people who rise up from the grassroots going to deliver. And if you talk to the people who live there, they're like, oh, I don't care. They're all the same people, just different names. Right? And they, they've lost all hope that anybody's really going to, only America keeps thinking the next president's really going to truly bring utopian society. But everybody else, if you go around the world, they're just like, in Mexico, my friend told me, who lives in Mexico, he was like, when you're walking down the street and you see the cops over here and the gangs over there, you stay in the middle. Because they're all the same. They just wear different clothing and different names. And that's what you are as an Israelite. You're thinking, oh. but at this point, you're like, whatever, who cares? Now, there's still a sense of hope because we're seeing it, right? But there's also a sense of like, yeah, but he's going to fail us too. And that's the question that's being asked. Not if you're the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah? Are you a Messiah like Elijah, Moses, and David? Or is there something different? And that's what you need to think about as we're going through this. It says this, the devil said to him, Since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The question is, Is God really taking care of you? You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And yet, you're not a king on the throne. You're not destroying Rome. You're not doing anything amazing. Your Father has led you by the Spirit into the wilderness to starve for 40 days. You have not come in on a, a donkey like Solomon with pomp and circumstances. Your birth was pathetic. Your, your, your illegitimacy through not being through Joseph has made you disrespected among the Nazarenes. Your, your, your childhood was so insignificant that nobody has recorded it except for one scene. If God is really, if you're, tr if, if God is really truly with you and really cares about you, then He should be taking care of you. But you have the power to take matters in your own hands and do what you want to do. <coughs> take care of yourself. I mean, He didn't do a great job with Israel in the wilderness. He didn't do a great job with Abraham. I mean, look at everybody. Everybody that God calls, He keeps taking them out in the wilderness. Hey, David, you're going to be my king, and I'm going to let you be chased by Saul for 20 years right? Jacob, you're going to be the blessings. 
and I'm going to let you be manipulated and abused and misused by Laban for 20 years. Like, this is God's MO. He doesn't care about you. And that's the idea. And, and many of us think that. We're tempted that. Like, if God was really with me, why am I going through this? If God said he would truly take care of me in my knees, why am I struggling financially or physically in my health? Or why is my family walking away and struggling? Why is there so much chaos? And we have these thoughts. And it's either God is not with me or God is not taking care of me or maybe I've stepped out of line and he's somehow right. This is human nature. And what we do is we take matters in our own hands. We don't. Our default is not pray. It's get a good lawyer, get a good doctor, or go to this thing and that thing and that thing. And that's all he's doing is like the flesh. You have the power to fix your own problem. If you want it done right, then you better do it yourself. That's the American way. And that's what the devil is saying. Because if Jesus does that, then he's no longer in the will of God because he's gone contrary to the will of God. And then he's just like a David, a Moses, and Elijah. And God will still do amazing things with them, but he will not bring redemption to the world because he is flawed now. This is what the devil wants. So he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. This is Moses' first speech in Deuteronomy. After the wilderness, and Moses gives his first speech, and the first speech he says, you guys fail, 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 fail. You constantly sinned against God. You failed here, you failed here, you failed here. You even tried to kill me. You claimed that God was a psychopath that only saved you to kill him, kill you. You fail, 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 fail. He goes through a whole history of all their failures. And then at the same time, he says, but God forgave you. God pursued you. God gave you water. God did this. God did this. And the whole thing is all have sinned, but God is still faithful to forgive you and pursue you no matter what. And that's the context of the speech. So in that speech, Moses is telling the people that they have failed in the wilderness and they have constantly tested God. We don't have any water. God gives them water. A couple months later, we don't have any water. We're all going to die. You don't care about us. So God gives them water. We know we don't have any food. You don't care about us. You're just coming to kill us. And they keep begging for this food and water all the time. And they keep testing God and acting like he doesn't actually care about them. And they even go and try to take care of things on their own sometimes. And Moses says, man does not live on bread alone. He lives on the word of God and the, the promises of God, the character of God. And, and God showed over and over again that he would take care of you. And, and if you just trust that based on his reputation and that he is God, then you would have never had to test him or complain or wonder or question whether it's going to come. And Jesus basically responds and says, I've learned that lesson. And not learned it like I needed to learn it, but our better way is I know that lesson. I know that point. And I'm not Israel. I am the ultimate Israel, but I'm not Israel. That's his response. That's how he refutes it. Deuteronomy 8.3 is not saying that humans don't need bread or food and that the ultimate test of faith is to go without food. But it's just saying that that is not to be your God, your obsession, your main focus, the thing that you think if you don't have, you can't survive. So then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in a flash all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, to you, I will grant this whole realm and the glory that goes along with it. And for it has not been relinquished to me and I can give it to anyone I wish. Then if you will worship me, and all this will be yours. So the devil then takes them, and we don't know whether this is, um, he takes them so high up into the sky that he's able to see everything, it's a vision or whatever. But the devil says, all this belongs to me. 
Now I'll give it all to you. God is giving you the wilderness. He's going to give you all these horrible, evil little sinners that are so miserable that you even later, now the devil doesn't know this is going to happen, but he knows human nature, are going to say, oh my gosh, how long do I have to put up with you people anymore? Jesus will say, I long to leave you and go back to God where things are better. This is what God is going to give you. This is your kingdom. These Jews and this wilderness. Or you can follow me and I will give you all kingdoms, all powers. This is not a false claim. These kingdoms do belong to the devil. The Bible made it very clear in Deuteronomy that God disinherited the nations and put the sons of God over each of the nations. And the sons of God rebelled against God and began to lead the nations. And Daniel says, and the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, were ruling over it. Jesus even said that the devil is the prince of the air. That he's ruling. And when, when Adam and Eve surrendered their crown to chaos, then it was fair game for anything else to take the crown. And the devil took so he, this is a legitimate offer. Now, the devil is also the father of lies. And he never actually gives you what he promises you because there's always some kind of loophole involved too. So is he really going to truly give it to Christ? Don't know. But let's say on the basis of argument that he would give it to Jesus. It still doesn't change the fact that Jesus switched his allegiance from God to another God, which would make them a horrible sinner. And I can't even begin to comprehend what it would mean for God a member of the Trinity, to sin and what that would do to the fabric of the universe and the fabric of our spiritual life. And then then in the worst case, and then definitely what it would mean is that there was literally nothing to redeem us. And then, then everything would literally be plunged into eternal hell with no hope of redemption. And even if the devil legitimately gave him the kingdoms of God, one day God is going to destroy the devil and everything that belongs to him, which would then be everything, because nothing would be redeemed, since there would be no perfect son to redeem us, and everything would be eventually taken away from Jesus. Jesus knows that not only would this separate him from the Father, who he desires more than anything, not only would this plunge all humanity and utter hopelessness of ever being redeemed, and the impossibility of it, who he loves so much that he's willing to give his own life for, but he also knows that this would be completely temporal, and that it would eventually be taken away completely. And he also knows that it would just bring hell to his creation, to the lovely and broadened existence. And then, and then, and then, and then, that I can even begin to comprehend because I'm not God. This is not good. I mean, it's one thing for us to give in temptation, which is horribly evil and bad and devastating. It's another thing for the God of the divine universe. And so there are cosmic and relational and eternal quinces on this. Jesus responds by saying... You are to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is a quotation from Deuteronomy 6.13, which is in that same speech, where Moses is telling Israel that the only way they can enjoy long life and blessings in the promised land is they worship God alone. They, they keep t- turning to the God of the golden calf and the God of the, this and the God of that and the God of that and God of that. And every time they turn away from God and they bow their knee to something else, their own strength, their own whatever, their own pride. I have the right to be a priest, not Aaron or Moses. Every time they keep doing that, they just keep bringing death and consequences, misery and dysfunctionality and brokenness with God and brokenness with each other. And this is the point that he's giving to this new generation. He says, your parents died in the wilderness. And they kept rebelling and he kept bailing. And, and so learn from your parents' mistakes. You shall worship the Lord your God only. And only when you do that will you actually experience life. Life in your relationship with each other. Life and blessings in the land. And life God. 
and, and, and then I have laid before you life and death and you choose. If he's the God of life, then he is the only source of life. So bow down and surrender to him. And that's context. And Jesus being the ultimate Israel, not only has resisted depending on his own strength, but he is resisting going to any other God, any other external outside source. So this is the resistance of internal self-reliance and the resistance against external dependencies on other things outside of God. And he says, I will, I will not worship anything else other than God. That is my allegiance, period. Then the devil brought him to Jerusalem and stand on the highest point of the temple and said to them, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now the question is, did other people see Jesus standing on the temple pinnacle? Probably not because they don't often look up that high. But if he threw himself off, would this be noticeable by a lot of people and be wowed? My guess is yes. And that this would be what better way to prove that you're with God than that. You don't need to do this weird going out into Galilee and just doing little teeny miracles and little villages here and there and telling people, don't tell anybody. You can make it all known right now. Prove it. You think God will take care of you. Matthew's gospel actually puts this as the second one. And the third temptation is bowing down to God. And that actually is probably the most better chronology. The better chronology is Jesus in the wilderness. The devil says, hey, take care of yourself. And then the devil, and Jesus says, oh no, God will take care of me. And it seems more logical the devil than say, okay, now prove it. Prove it that God will take care of you. And then once he proves it and says, well, no, I'm not going to prove it because I don't have to. Then the devil's like, okay, but now the ultimate test, glory, power, fame. Okay. And that seems to fit more, which makes sense because not only is that most correct chronological order, it also leads to where is he truly going to get his power and glory from as the king. Matthew's gospel. Well, he gets it from God. Luke is more interested in the fact that Jesus is going to be, it starts at the temple because Jesus' ministry is going to go be ultimately leading to the temple of death and resurrection and depending upon God. And, and so here is the dependence of God, the temple to temple. The devil is like, you can quote scripture. I can quote scripture too. And so the devil quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. And he quotes scripture and he says, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And with their hands they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The devil says, you can quote scripture, I can quote scripture. Scripture says that God will never allow his Messiah to be harmed in any kind of way. And he'll send angels and keep you from even being physically hurt even to your little toe. So if God is really taking care of you, throw yourself off here and God will save you to fulfill scripture. And he has to do it because... The word of God is always true. One of my professors said, Bible, Bible, Bible. Everybody is reading and quoting the Bible. The question is, are they reading and quoting it correctly within its context? Yes, Psalm 91 verses 11 through 12 says that very clearly. But Psalm 91 verse 1 starts off by making it very clear that those who obey and submit and follow and trust in God and live righteously through him, those are the ones that he will guide and not allow them to be harmed. So if you're testing God and disobeying him, taking matters in your own hands and taking the will into your own, well, autonomy, then you're outside the will of God. You're not obeying him. You're not trusting him. You're not righteous. Therefore, he, the promise does not apply to you. Context, 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 context. The devil knows the Bible better than you know. 
which it also means he knows how to manipulate it and take it out of context to make it sound really good in a really good way. That might sound really reasonable to you unless you have a mastery of the Word of God too. But more important than that, a direct relationship with the Holy Spirit who even when your mastery fails, the Spirit can be like, ding, 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 not right, not right, not right, and then point you to the correct passage and help you understand the context. But Jesus is the Word of God, and His mastery is ultimate, and He is led by the Spirit of God. Therefore, there is no question of His understanding of this passage. And so the Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And it says this, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. Now remember, the test of Deuteronomy 18 is, I don't know if this is actually God speaking to me right now, and I don't know if you're really truly from God like you claim you are, angel or human. I'm going to test to see if you're really God or from God. So you need to do something miraculous that only God can do in order to prove that you're from God. And that's Gideon testing to see if God is truly it and Judges 6 with the fire coming down onto the altar. And it's every prophet who says, and so you will know this is the sign. And we talked about with Elizabeth and Mary. And that. But there's the other test of Deuteronomy 6.16, where we say, I don't believe that you actually love me, God. Prove it. I don't believe that you're actually capable of taking care of me, fulfilling your promises, God. Prove it. And this is insulting. Because God has revealed himself all throughout the Bible and us, the death and resurrection of God, Christ, that he is capable and loving to take care of you. And he's also indwelt us, which we have the Spirit of God, and we've seen that experientially in our own lives, and we've felt it. And, and if we would only keep a memory, a remembrance of the things he's done in our life, and if only the community would constantly keep a record and a testimony of the things that he's done in their lives, there should be no shadow of a doubt whether he cares for you or he's capable of taking care of you. Yet we still are like, I don't know, God. I don't know. The America's going to pot right now. What if we end up like Venezuela and Cuba? Like, I don't know. If God promised that it was, he's with you, right? i I just been diagnosed with this sickness and illness. What am I going to do? Oh, my gosh. There's, God's promised that he's with you. And this, oh, we just lost everything in this financial thing. What are we going to do? Well, there's no hope. God said he'd take care of us, but oh my gosh, we have no money and we have no retirement. So he's with you. He never promised your life was going to be happy-go-lucky and easy, utopia, and, 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 but he's said he'd be with you and he'd take care of you. And so this is what Jesus is saying. Do not put the Lord God to the test. I already know that he's capable and loving and willing. And I have a, a, a reputation throughout history. And, and to test him is insulting. If you were incredibly loving to a friend and you took care of their needs and you listened to their problems and you helped them financially with medical bills or whatever, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then one day they're like, I don't really believe that you truly love me. You can prove it. And you do it. And the next day they're like, I'm still not convinced. Prove it. And you do it. And the next day they're like, I don't know, I'm not convinced. And they either say that literally or they, it's unspoken. It's insulting. It's absolutely insulting. It's one thing when you've just met. It's another thing when you have a relationship. And this is what Jesus is saying. is My relationship with God is so intimate and so close 
There's no doubts. Why would I test him? That would be so insulting to him. And I love him too much to hurt him. I love him too much to do that to our relationship. And this is what all Jesus is about. For the devil, it's power. It's self-reliance. It's self-justification. It's, 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 it's material. But for Jesus, it's, no, all I need is my relationship with God. I don't need the material things of the world to be happy and satisfied. No. I will not worship and be relationally close to anything else that is outside of God. He is the only relationship that I need. No. I will not insult him and offend him and hurt him because my relationship with him is that much important to me. And that's the thing that you must understand. The devil is always offering you power, fame. But Christ is saying it's about relationships. And first and foremost, it starts with my Father. And then it will go out to everybody else. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your life, and all your everything. And love your neighbor. Here we have Deuteronomy 6.4. Love the Lord your God with your heart, life, and everything. Which will then lead Jesus' ministry of loving my neighbor as myself. And at this point, Jesus has proven that he is unlike any other Messiah that we have ever seen. And at this moment, you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, oh, oh. He's different. He is unique. He is a new kind of Israel. He is ultimate Israel. My goodness, I've never seen any human can do this. Could there be something more to him than even just a prophet? Is it, He's a Messiah unlike anything that I even thought the Messiah was going to be. I knew the Messiah was going to be unique and ultimate and, and more than Moses, but I still thought it was going to be really just like Moses. But now the gates are open to the idea that when he begins to reveal himself as God, you're going to be more likely to accept that as the reason. And all of a sudden, what this temptation proves is that Jesus is the Messiah, absolutely unique and unlike anything else that humans have ever seen in creation. And the only thing that is that is Yahweh. And it also presents you with the idea that yeah, perhaps he's without sin. Because Hebrews is going to go on and say that the devil hit him with everything he had. He was at his most weakest, Jesus, and most vulnerable. And yet, the devil tempted him along all points of the scale. We already talked about what that meant. He was tempted with the full weight of temptation. Everything that the devil and the world and the flesh could give Jesus was thrown on him in this moment. And Jesus bench-pressed it like it was nothing. And he threw it off. He resisted. And he walked away. And at this point, you realize he's a champion. He's a messiah. And all of a sudden you realize when he starts talking about death and defeating the grave and, and redemption and resurrection, you're like, you know what? I think that's, that's possible. And then when it happens, you're like, that makes sense. And so what Luke and Matthew are doing here is setting you up for don't think First Testament anymore on First Testament figures. We are in a whole new realm that nobody has ever anticipated or seen before. And you don't need the cross to get it. It starts right here.
The cross is just the ultimate sea, the final conclusion of what has started here. He is the unique and ultimate Messiah. And that's the point that is being painted here. And every reader from this point on, their ears are perked up, their eyes are wide, and every little detail is not going to be missed anymore. Because it's not just another story that Grandpa told you over and over and over again. There's something unique. No offense against Grandpa. So this is what he says. Now, it says this. So the devil had completed every temptation, and he departed from him until a more opportune time. This is not the end. The devil is coming back. Now, we don't see any like spiritual climactic thing here like a wilderness. There's no like in this ring and then this ring in the wilderness ever again. But it's so obvious with every time the Pharisees come against Jesus, the devil's involved. Every single time that Jesus tempted to do something, the devil's there. Every single time they try to kill him, throw him off a cliff or whatever, the devil is there. The crucifixion, the devil is there. They take yourself off the cross. Take matters in your own hands and fix your problems. The devil is there. And it becomes very clear that this is the more opportune time. And that's the thing we must realize. The devil is always going to come back. But Hebrews also says that if we depend on Christ, not only will he give us compassion, knowing what it's like to be tested along all points of the scale like us, yet he was without sin and he'll give us the power to become vindicated in the temptation if we distrust him. So at this point, you don't expect him to really lose in any future battle because he's the indisputed king of the ring. And that's the idea here. Now, Matthew's gospel goes on and says that the angels came and attended to him. And that's important because the devil quoted that passage. And because Jesus stayed in the will of God and trust and depend upon him, then God fulfilled his word. And he sent the angels to take care of him and feed him and get him ready for the next stage of his ministry. And that's the preaching. And this is the idea that is being carried here. So the Holy Spirit does not keep Jesus from being tempted, but rather empowers Jesus to overcome the temptation to be victorious. The victory Jesus won through his wise use of the scriptures. And this is the important thing. We do not trust in horses and chariots, power and wealth. We trust in the Spirit of God. And the idea is Jesus was in the Spirit of God for 40 days. The Spirit of God came upon him. He was led by the Spirit. He was communing with the Spirit in God. And then he knew the Word of God. It was not an arm wrestling contest. It was not a sword fight. It was not Harry Potter magic and power coming out of their hands against each other. It was not Iron Man who has the best technology. in the. It was a mastery of the Word of God. And it was a mastery of knowing his true identity as the image of God, as the Son of God. And this is your greatest weapon against the flesh, the world, and the devil. It is when first you are in a relationship with God through the Spirit. You're in communion. You know him. And two, you know your identity. You know who you are in Christ. You know what the world really is. You know what your flesh really is. And you know who you are in Christ. And three, and you know the Word of God. You spent time with it. And even though you've not mastered it like Christ is, you're being led by the Spirit, and you know the Father, and you know the Son, and you're in communion, and whatever you've invested in the Word of God, the Spirit will just amplify that when the moment comes. 
And this is what Jesus says, I will give you the words and I will give you the ability to resist. This is the key to Christ's success. It's not giving in. It's not our skills and flesh. It's when we relinquish ourselves in the world and submit to the Spirit and the Word and our identity in Christ. That's where mastery of the Word comes. Mostly when you read the Word of God, it helps you understand who you truly are. And the more you know who you are without Christ and who you are with Christ, the greater your confidence is in Him and the greater resistance of temptation, the greater resist your low self-esteem, the greater resist your pride, and the more likely you're going to be in unison with God, building and expanding the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Any questions? Lord, I thank you for the absolute uniqueness of Jesus. We thank you for his power and his power that is found through relationships. The world, the occult, other religions constantly offer us power. And our natural human desire is to desire that power. But when we give ourselves over to that power, that power ends up turning on us, betraying us, destroying us, or leaving us when we need it the most. Because all things will eventually fail and pass away. But you, you offer us a relationship. You offer us an intimate, eternal, and true relationship. A relationship that is eternal because you are eternal. A relationship that is eternal because we are too eternal when we are found in you through redemption. And that is what really truly meets our needs. We think our desire, or our desire is power. It's control. But our true deepest desire is love and acceptance and safety and peace and joy and contentment. And that's what you offer. And if we see that and trust in you, then you will meet our deepest, truest, foundational needs. And we will be so filled up like Christ is that any offer of power or wealth or money or any will just be empty to us. Because those are only means of trying to meet our basic needs and those have already been met. I pray that you would help us see that in the way that Jesus understood it. And we know we can because Christ is in us. In Jesus' name, amen.